eight months. That's how long it's been since Arizona State last played a game. It definitely was a period of time where there was no shortage of news to report on in the offseason, and not all of it was really all that pleasing in nature. Ultimately, though, what does it all mean for the upcoming season? Well, in this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast, I'll be joined by DevilsDigest.com staff writer Cole Topham to break down both sides of the ball for Arizona State when we were sitting just a few days away from the beginning of preseason camp, and additionally discuss the offseason field, significant aspects of NIL, transfer portal, and NCAA investigation, and how they've all impacted the Sun Devils going into this upcoming campaign. And later on, Brad Denny, co-host of Speak of the Devils podcast, will join me from Los Angeles, where he attended the Pac-12 Media Day, and get his observations about what Arizona State had coach Herm Edwards said about his team's preparedness for this year, and naturally also address the narrative coming out of Media Day about potential conference realignment in light of both LA schools bolting for the Big Ten in 2024. We have lots to dive into, so thank you for tuning in. Let's get this thing started. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the Devil Town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher, Hoda Rubino. And don't ask me why I've been waiting so long to have my staff member, Cole Topham, on my podcast. It seemed like he's been like on 20 other podcasts besides mine. But uh, the wait is over to go ahead and preview the 2022 Sun Devils. I am very happy to be finally joined, and it's totally on me. But my staff writer, Cole Topham. Cole, how you doing, man? Yeah, I mean, it, I'm doing great. It's it's crazy how I've appeared more on the Speak of the Devils podcast than this one. I don't know if there was some sort of agenda that you you were trying to push on me, Hode, but I'm glad to finally be on this podcast with you. Well, I deserve all the criticism, Cole, like I said. No uh, <laughs> no uh, pa- passing the buck over here. But you know, let's dive right into it. And I know there's a lot of macro, a lot of off-the-field issues to discuss about the CSU team and what kind of p- potential impact they can have. But let's just talk about the micro, the the nitty gritty of this 2022 squad. And, you know, we always start on offense, but you know what, Cole, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to start on defense because I think that this is the unit that maybe more than the offense, generally speaking, can really dictate how well this team is going to do. If this team has any chance of surprise, I got to feel that this defense really has to show up, maybe even outperform some of the expectations uh, they may have. Uh, What's your take? Just on that theory alone. I mean, I think ASU has always prided itself having, you know, some defenses that rank in the top of the conference. And last year's unit especially, I mean, of course, you know, number one in total defense, but they lost they lost eight starters from last season and they finishing at the top is no guarantee anymore. So I definitely agree that this defense needs to over overperform um, considering the losses on offense. But there's a lot of areas – uh, of continuity for this defense. I mean, obviously, Donnie Henderson employing basically the same scheme from last year. And you hope, like, the pass rush in uh, Coach Rodriguez's, uh, I think, third season here, it's going to be, you know, more polished. The players are going to respond better to it. It's going to be a lot more fluid than in previous years. So we're going to see a stronger presence up front. The linebacker unit basically returns to two starters that have solidified themselves in the lineup as leaders of the team, as, as players that other teammates look up to, to uh, command the field for them. And that's Kyle Soli and Merlin Robertson. So you expect the middle of the field to be solid. And those guys are tremendous in coverage as well. And then I thought it was interesting with the secondary to just round 
all parts of the defense out that nobody in the secondary following the spring game decided to enter their name in the transfer portal. I think that really goes to show the brotherhood of, of that secondary and how close those guys are, um, even though they're going to have to replace Chase Lucas, Jack Jones, Evan Field, and DeAndre Pierce, who were basically you know, stalwarts, the, those four um, in the back half for the last two seasons. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, it wouldn't be going on a limb to saying that the secondary definitely has more question marks uh, com- compared to the front seven. You talked about the linebackers, Kyle Sola and Merlin Robinson, and I think those two players by themselves probably would put the ASU linebacker group as one of the better ones in the Pac-12, even though I've seen some rankings that would disagree with that. But when you talk about uh, the, the, the defensive line, I feel it's a situation where there's a lot of depth, a lot of intriguing players at at both defensive end positions, but the, the, the belly of the, of this defense, that's where you have newcomers, seldom used uh, players that really are going to assume a, a, a much bigger role. And I picked in my uh, X factor article, uh, Omar Norman lot at, at the three technique tackle uh, to be the uh, one, one of the players that he can dictate a lot and how well this defense uh, is, is going to do. And Nestor Jade Silvera, the, the nose tackle transfer from Miami, uh, is a player that that on paper, I don't really should be a downgrade at all uh, from from uh, DJ Davidson, who got drafted by the New York Giants a few months ago. Would you also agree that that defensive line, uh, if those two players I mentioned, uh, uh, Silvera and, and Omar Namalat, show up and, and show up big? And I know this good players behind them, TJ Pesafea, BJ Green, and others. Uh, do you feel that really it's the interior of this defense that may have uh, some concerns compared to the defensive end? I, I think there's concern because of just how, like, how new it is and how unproven it is and, uh, like, the people that they're replacing, right? Like you said, Davidson, he's now in the NFL. Jermaine Lole, who's a preseason All-American pick a season ago, didn't play last year, now at Louisville. Um, I mean, you look at Omar, of course he has big shoes to fill, but we've seen Omar in practice. He's punchy. He's physical. His, his hands are basically the size of my head. Like that dude is, is just a bundle of energy up front. And I think uh, like he has a really, a really good opportunity to cement himself like in that interior defensive line and really provide a presence that I think many would won't, wouldn't expect like heading into this season, especially with, you know, Nesta Jade Silvera, um, there's a, a few videos circulating around of people doing some offseason scouting and paying attention like, yo, th- like this guy is actually really athletic and he was really underutilized during his time at Miami. And now he's getting his chance to um, really, you know, show what he can do and prove himself uh, in Coach Rodriguez's um, under Coach Rodriguez's tut- tutelage. Right. And then if you round out like the the 2D behind those guys, you've got BJ Green, um, a, a very effective speed rusher who still has a lot of untapped potential and coach Rod does recognize that, but the dude led the team in sacks with, with five sacks last season. So I think you, you've got to feel a little bit more comfortable with BJ green um, providing a presence behind Omar. And then you've got, you know, TJ Pesafea, who I thought was a really solid fill in um, when he had to come in for um, Davidson and, and Shannon Foreman last season. And when you look at, look at the secondary, um, I know that at one corner, you have somebody who technically has been a reserve, uh, for most of his ASU career, but I know one of your favorites, uh, uh, Tamarcus Davis, and I- I'm really curious to see if, if Keon Markham is really going to be the other uh, starting cornerback, a player that really had a very uh, quiet career, I would say, at, at Arizona State, and obviously 
had um, you know quite the depth chart uh, to uh, to battle. But you know, let's let's maybe talk about the corners first. Um, do you really feel that what we saw ending the spring is also what we're going to see ending full camp in terms of Davis and Keon Markham being the two starters? Yeah, I think so, and I think it's because. Donnie Henderson, he, he seems like a very traditional defensive coordinator. And when you look at those corners, you see a lot of length, right? I think both of those are, are six foot corners. Um, you know, they've got a, a, a ton of upper body strength, um, long limbed guys that can be effective in press coverage and not allow their, their man to really get a step on them deep. And I think that's what's really enticing um, for Donnie Henderson and coach Fletcher about these corners. Um, and we talked to Isaiah Johnson um, the redshirt freshman who uh, he said he hasn't played football in two years, but I mean, that dude was a, was an incredible athlete, um, you know, in that, in that recruiting class uh, a few years ago, and he just hasn't really gotten his chance to shine. So last year's group, it seemed to be very primed on athleticism in terms of Chase Lucas and Jack Jones. That's what, that's what they hinged on um, their games on fast reaction, um, fast footwork, good technique, and this class or this group of corners for ASU per se is, is more of like a, a physical uh, length defined secondary group. And I think that's, that's really exciting for a new identity for the secondary that um, the defense can work with. And I'll just mention two players that uh, were not there in the spring, but are going to be there in full camp. Uh, Tariq Luckett, uh, who, uh, who did, did play at Colorado and uh, can, now came from the JC route. He, he's over six foot two. And he got uh, Ro Torrance from Auburn also uh, over 6'2". So that goes to, to, to what you're saying, uh, Cole, that uh, really having a much longer cornerback group. I've been covering the team for 22 years. I don't remember so many corners uh, on the roster that, that are over six feet, tall, six feet tall. So I'm really curious to see how that materializes, uh, you know, on, on any given Saturday uh, when you're facing some pretty explosive passing teams in the Pac-12. Let's end the discussion on the defense uh, when, when it comes to the safeties. Um, to me, that was probably the biggest uh, concern easily on this side of the ball and maybe and maybe in some respects on, on just the entire team just because you really uh, did not have any proven players uh, in, in that regard. I mean, sure, you got Kevon Markham, uh, who technically wasn't a starter last year, wasn't supposed to be a starter, but with injury to Evan Fields, actually end, end, end up starting a lot of games. And maybe the two... Uh, I'm not going to say the most crucial transfer portal guys because there are a lot of uh, key transfer portal guys on this team, but I think maybe under the radar, let's say crucial guys, uh, Chris Edmonds, who, who came from Samford, and uh, Corey Bethy, who came, who came from Hawaii. I don't know if those are going to be the two starters uh, when ASU kicked off the 2022 season. I'm sure Kiwan Markham is going to have something to say about that. But uh, do you feel that ASU has – uh, really short up that too deep at safety or do you think it's really still kind of work in progress and maybe one of those positions where at the end of fall camp we're not getting the uh, clear cut and more importantly comforting answers that uh, you would want to feel good about uh, this uh, position unit yeah I mean I feel like there's always going to be discussion about like the back half in terms of you know, I mean, that's the final line of defense. Like how, how well are they responding to their corners cry for help? Are they able to fill in the run gaps when the linebackers are short up? Um, that's always going to be a discussion when you're replacing the back half. 
But in my opinion, like you bring in Corey Bethley's like that rover type safety um, that can, you know, pretty much buzz anywhere he needs to and, and arrive in time to make a play. And then we got Chris Edmonds, who, I mean, continuing this theme of length uh, is, is just a, a very, you know, a lengthy prospect, but, um, you know, agile in that aspect as well. So you've got a really unique combination there that you feel good about. And he's a ball hawk too. I mean, the, the number of interceptions that I watched on tape um, from his time at Samford um, was, was really impressive. Um, I, I feel honestly feel like it's the same situation that the Sun Devils are in um, that, that they were in last year where they, they felt good about their starters and Evan Fields and DeAndre Pierce uh, about people um, that could, that could really back up the defense. But when problems arose with health or availability it was that it was that too deep that you were like you know man can we can we really trust these guys to fill the fill the roles and execute execute the game plan and I think Kawan Markham having played last year definitely eases eases some concerns but like the two other safeties on the on the roster Elijah Gamage and and Willie Hart's like those guys didn't really play too much last year and in you know, the, the few instances that they did, they didn't really, you know, provide anything that makes you go like, you know, wow, I want, I, I want that kid, you know, backing up in a, in a starting position every Saturday. And so I think that's why you see Jordan Clark, you know, seeing some reps there, RJ Reagan, seeing some reps there It's because his coaching staff isn't entirely sold on their, on their too deep um, in at the safety position. And so that's, that's how I see it. I think the transfers are going to make an impact, a, a healthy impact, um, in, in the two deep. And I think they're going to fill in really well, but what happens when, you know, problems arise, um, in terms of, in terms of health. Yeah. And I think, uh, Willie Hartz will be that answer to the trivia question. Who is the player that got impacted the most from the move from the three, three, five to the four, three, four. And I think mm-hmm. it has to be Willie Hartz because, you know, I know how much you remember 2019, but Willie Hartz was he a pretty pick dang the, good. Uh, Tony, the Tiger Bowl. Yeah, exactly. But pretty, but pretty dang good safety uh, for, 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 for Danny Gonzalez uh, back then in that scheme. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting to see, um, you know, how, how this defense does. If, if I, I, would, I would just wrap up the conversation and say that if I feel that this uh, secondary, especially at safety, can really play above expectations and, and the linebacker and the defensive line plays, I would say pretty much up to expectations, but I think are pretty high, uh, this defense uh, can definitely be one that can uh, that can carry the load, that can keep ASU in, in really close games, because there are some question marks on offense, and that's the the next group we're going to talk about. And obviously, you're going to st- you're going to start at quarterback. Uh, Herm Edwards said day one of spring practice. I don't know if our starting quarterback is here on campus yet. And uh, sure enough, I mean, there definitely was uh, some uh, substance uh, to that uh, statement because after uh, spring practice concluded. Uh, Emory Jones, they, who was a starting quarterback at Florida uh, last last year, uh, come, comes over. I know, uh, Cole, you, you did a great job, uh, you know, breaking down his game, seeing how we can bring uh, his or how I should say his uh, arsenal of skills can really impact um, ASU. In a lot of ways, obviously, the classic dual threat quarterback, maybe in, a, in some regards, a, a carbon copy of what Jaden Daniels showcased here for the last three years. But let's maybe go to why do you think he may be different than Jaden Daniels? Why do you think he may actually elevate the passing game for Arizona State, which struggled quite a bit in the last two seasons? Yeah, I think 
let's let's go with the similarities first. Emory Jones, dual threat quarterback, and that really benefits the read option, right? Um, I mean, especially having a dynamic ground game with three capable running backs that ASU is likely going to field um, this season, along with um, you know George Hart and and the rest of the backfield. Um, I just think Emory Jones provides that backfield with just so so much duality in terms of reading linebackers, knowing, you know, when he can take off with a football, when there's going to be a gap open that he can shoot into, or if, if nothing's available on the outside, just, you know, trusting your playmaker to, you know, hit the hole and, and do what he does best as, as Daniel and God did last season when he would come in and provides those spark plays. And I think Emory Jones, if the run game is as solid as it was last year, then, um, you know, just having him in the mix and having his rushing ability is a, a plus that, no other quarterback on this roster offers. And, and I think that's why, you know, he's the de facto QB one ever since he decided to commit to Arizona state is because he offers the offense, you know, something else that, that no other quarterback can. Um, And in terms of differences from Jaden Daniels, I think Emory Jones brings a sort of, you know, calmness of, of being in that sec atmosphere and knowing what it, what it takes to be at, um, you know, in the limelight of one of, college football's pinnacle programs, I think he's carried that weight on his shoulders and he's a little bit more equipped to deal with the pressures of, of playing from, you know, behind and, and adversity as well, which is what, what I think was the number one storyline of this team last year, aside from the, the NCAA investigation was how this team could respond to adversity. And it seems like all the players know that it was an issue last year and they've worked on it, but uh, Last year, they just didn't have an answer for it. And I don't think Jaden Daniels was very good um, about communicating to this team um, those answers or providing those answers. And so I think that's what Emory Jones can bring this team, um, you know, where, where they fell short last year is, is just being a little bit more um, ha- having a little bit more tranquility in, in dealing with those pressures. And as great as a dual threat quarterback that Emory Jones is, and I and I totally agree, Cole. I think this player, I think he's one quarterback that's going to do a lot of damage uh, with his feet. And I think maybe that's something that Jamie Downs actually did a very good job in moving the chains uh, with, with his feet in terms of rushing yards, in terms of rushing rushing touchdowns. But I think Emory Jones can even take that uh, element uh, of the ASU offense to, to even a higher level. But let's face it, a great running game is a quarterback's best friend. And even though Jaden Daniels' numbers were not that great, even though he had an absolute stud in Rashad White uh, in, in, in the offensive backfield. Uh, how do you feel the, the running game as a whole? Uh, Daniel Ngata, Xavier Valde from Wyoming. Uh, you mentioned George Hart, uh, Tevin White, uh, the, the true freshman uh, from the state of Virginia. How do you feel uh, those guys collectively can support a, a, guy, a guy like Emory Jones and uh, maybe really facilitate a better passing game ultimately? I mean, I think it's just positive feedback on, on both sides. I think uh, Zazavian is, is just a, a really solid rusher. He, w- he was for a long time at Wyoming, and he kind of used this as his one opportunity to um, be the, the lead guy in, in this backfield and, and really prove to NFL scouts that, um, you know, he can, he can, like, take an NFL workload and really be a focal point of, a, of an offense. So I think this backfield is just – it's just hungry, right? You've got X, you've got Daniel Ngata, you've got Tevin White, the freshman, um, George Hart too, who saw some playing time um, toward the end of games last season that he, he seems to be forming a, to, 
to be a capable option behind those, those three front runners. So I think what you've got with this backfield is what you've got in previous seasons where it's multi-pronged um, you've got dynamic uh, pass catchers as well. Um, there's nothing that you can't ask these running backs to do because at, at this point, like I feel like Sean Aguano is going to prepare these guys to be the quarterback's best friend, like you said, and, and they're going to, they're going to be tasked to do whatever needs that needs to be do on the, that needs to be done on the play, whether it's, you know, go out into the flats and catch the football or, or stay in a block for their quarterback. And uh, when you look at uh, at the tight ends, and I've been saying uh, this for quite a while, I I think that this might be maybe the best unit on offense and probably the best units on just either side of the ball. Uh, Messiah Swinson, the uh, uh, transfer from Missouri, you got got Jalen Conyers, uh, you know, now now in in the second year, I think uh, more season and probably was the – "Quote unquote victim of uh, Curtis Hodges having having such a great year, and now he's playing in the NFL as well. Uh, and uh, you know Jacob Jacob Newell, I think that even though ASU's recruiting class, especially in the high school ranks, was very small, I think that guy is probably the biggest under the radar uh, recruit that really can surprise a lot of people. So overall, a, a really really a really good unit." Um, you know, and I know this question kind of ties into the wide receivers. We'll talk about it in a, in a minute, but do, I mean, I think, and I think you also believe that too, that the, that really the, the, the onus of this uh, passing game really might fall in the tight ends rather than the wide receivers. So I'll phrase the question this way. Is it, does it really have to unfold in that manner where the tight ends really have to be strong, dependable aerial targets in this, in this ASU offense? Or can can they maybe yield to the wide receivers to actually carry the load, uh, you know, putting up the more traditional uh, uh, distribution of stats uh, when, when, when it comes to the passing game? And, and really, is there any way you can overstate how important this tight end group is for, for ASU? I think to answer your question, I think it is vital that these tight ends emerge um, pretty early in the season. Um, especially with the, you know, the receiving core being gutted and, and having to take on a new identity. Um, and, and with ASU going after a group of athletic, uh, lengthy tight ends to make a difference on this roster um, pretty prominently in the, in the transfer portal, I think they have an agenda with the tight end position that has been in development for the last few years. And they really need to see payoff at that position uh, in order to make it all work it worth it. And also to, you know, ease that transition um, for these pass catchers. Right. I mean, you have Messiah Swinson who um, many have many think he's a clone of Curtis Hodges from last season. Um, the most successful tight end in Herm Edwards tenure here. Um, he's Swinson is six foot seven, two fifty five, So he's a little bit bigger than Hodges. You've got Conyers who is seen as, you know, kind of the more bigger bodied, but equally as an athletic option who had a touchdown in the Utah game. And then also had a, a caught a very deep pass in the, in the Vegas bowl that kept a drive alive for ASU. And then they brought in um, Bryce Pierre and Jacob Newell, who you mentioned, who are also athletic options. So there's plenty of depth at that position. Um, and especially since ASU, we expect them to be in 12 personnel a lot, which means two tight ends on the field. And that's not only going to impact the passing game, but that's going to impact the running game as well, because two tight ends on the field essentially, um, you know, makes it 
power to one side, right? So the defense kind of has to gamble. Like, do you sub in, uh, do you sub out an extra defensive back and put in an extra linebacker and therefore make the defense slower? Or do you roll the dice and keep the extra defensive back in and kind of get overpowered in the run game? Because obviously the defensive back is going to have a little bit more, less muscle mass to combat you know, the, the freight train in front of them of blockers. So it kind of, you kind of plays mind games with the defense um, a little bit in terms of how, what ASU is going to do on a certain play. And that's why it's kind of important that the tight ends and the run game work together because it really increases uh, the, the versatility of each play call, right? Um, with two tight ends, they can either be throwing the football and, and moving the tight ends in the slot and really creating mismatches on the outside, or, they can run the football and and have two tight ends plus maybe case hatch as a lead blocker um, for whoever's in the backfield. So that's why it's so vital that these tight ends, um, you know, really pick up the slack in the, in the receiving department and become actual weapons because it determines exactly how, uh, how dangerous and how versatile ASU can be with their game plans. Yeah, almost feel like uh, the maybe uh, new offensive coordinator, Glenn Thomas, probably wished that the Oklahoma State uh, game was the last non-conference contest instead of uh, the second one. Because I think if Oklahoma State was the third and last non-conference game, you wouldn't see any 12 personnel anywhere in the first two games. And they would just have to roll it out against Oklahoma State. Probably wouldn't see it you know, in full camp, what, what have you. But uh, ASU right now has only one game of the season opener to quote unquote hide that uh, alignment. And I'm curious to see how effective it can be against Oklahoma state. And I'll make an early prediction that, that if they have any chance of winning that game at, at Stillwater, uh, those uh, tight end group and, and the 12 personnel effectiveness is really ha- going to have to be at a very, very high level uh, for the, for them to be successful. So you mentioned the wide receiver group, and I totally agree that it absolutely has been gutted. I think the the number of uh, proven players is really few and far in between. I think there's going to be a lot of newcomers uh, that, that, that ASU is going to have to rely on. Uh, and, you know, we, we hear about the potential of Elijah Badger. We hear about the potential of, of, of Brian Thompson, who transferred from Utah uh, the, the, the other season. Is this wide receiver group maybe the biggest question mark on uh, on either side of the ball? Because, like I said, it's – it's really a mystery of who, you know, who's going to step up. And on top of that, you got a new starting quarterback. And on top of that, you got a new offensive scheme. Uh, I think this wide receiver group can have a lot of growing pains and as quickly as they can snap out of those growing pains might be an indicator of what kind of season ASU is going to have and maybe more than any other position on the field. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what we've been saying for the last three seasons is how quickly is this receiver group going to get it? And, you know, a lot, a lot of those options that we're, you know, kind of banking on um, for the, for, for the offense, at least um, in order to transform into like what Zach Hill imagined it would be have since left the program, right? Johnny Wilson's at Florida state, LV Bunkley Shelton um, at Oklahoma. And those guys were kind of expected to come in uh, and, and be like the major contributors of the offense and never could really, you know, get a grasp on it. So the hope is, is that, Glenn Thomas's scheme, huddling every every play, making sure everybody's on the same page is, is really going to facilitate the success of these receivers, especially since, you know, some of those receivers are, are players that really struggled to, um, you know, get their discipline in order, um, but also, you know, really commit to 
understanding the playbook and, and just being available at practice. Right. I mean, and I think the, at the forefront is Elijah Badger and having talked to Elijah uh, on, on, you know, this, this past Monday, he seems, you know, much more locked in than he was like a season ago and, and has a, a newfound confidence that he can really succeed in this offense. Uh, he told me that he's playing both the X and Z positions, picking him up fairly well. And that um, I mentioned his, one of his routes in the, in the Las Vegas bowl. And he had watched that route as recently as the other week. Cause he was, you know, thinking about all those long balls that he's going to get this season for him. So I, I think with this, with this receiving group, there's a lot of players that are unproven, but are also eager to prove. Right. And I, I remember Andre Johnson is, is one of those players who um, started the season off strong, but kind of, gave way to other playmakers in the offense who were performing a little bit more consistently. And I think that has got to provide a little bit of fuel for him to come out and, and off on the right foot um, for this season, especially Brian Thompson too. Like this, this is his absolute last season. Um, he has to prove himself and last year didn't really go the way he wanted due to, due to injuries and um, you know, just not, not really putting together that, that consistent slew of games that was needed um, for him, especially as one of the senior members of the passing group. Um, so it, look for him to, to really make his mark on, on this season and, and become like the de facto number one target uh, in the receiving game. But I will say like, I think the, the ace in the hole for, the, for this offense is Geo Sanders, Giovanni Sanders. He really impressed me, um, you know, this past spring, just with his intelligence of the offense, I think he gave us the, the best description of the competition between the, the signal callers and the quarterbacks. And he was able to evaluate Trenton Borgay's strengths and weaknesses, Paul Tyson's um, strengths and weaknesses, and what how he was adjusting to both of them. So I think Geo Sanders is definitely a guy that where you can see his stock rise um, through, this, through this fall camp and, and see if he can play a, a significant role in the slot this season. So we broke down uh, the offense, the defense, and I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little about uh, special teams. I think punter Eddie Shaplitsky, uh, especially with uh, the uh, sudden, maybe not so sudden uh, transfer of Michael Turk to Oklahoma, I think did a great job uh, stepping in at place kicker. I think uh, Carter Brown, uh, one of the best uh, place kickers in the uh, 2022 recruiting class, uh, a player that I'm still semi-shocked as he was able to, hang on for so long uh, is, uh, is somebody that can uh, really elevate the, the, the kicking game that way. You know, you know DJ Taylor seems like uh, ever since that uh, hundred yard, which was more like 108 yard uh, uh, kickoff return for a touchdown against U of A is consistently uh, always uh, in the preseason as one of the best uh, specialists uh, in, in, in the pac 12. Um, I think it's a special teams uh, group call that, uh, ASU may not may have to rely on a little more than, than they have in, in years past. Uh, I mean, do you feel that this uh, special teams can be uh, maybe somewhat of a difference maker if needed uh, down the road uh, for the Sun Devils? Yeah, I think it can be, especially in terms of, of field position, right? Like, I mean, two years ago, Michael Turk was able to completely, you know, transform the momentum of some games with how he was able to pin um, opponents, you know, inside the 10, inside the five. And I think we saw inklings of that from Chaplitsky last season. He definitely had some good kicks. He had, he had some bad kicks as well. Um, and I think that just goes with the, you know, being a freshman, you know, taking over the, 
you know, the mantles of someone that was obviously so established at his position. Right. And so I think we can expect some more consistency from Chaplitsky this season and Carter Brown as well. I think the expectations are for him to immediately step in and provide um, consistency at, at the kicking position that there just hasn't been um, for the last three seasons for ASU. Um, yeah. Christians and Dejas, he was, he was a fine kicker, but he had a range and ASU knew that range. I think they can, really experiment with how um, they can put points on the board with Carter Brown and, and really test how, you know, his range as a freshman and what he can do in terms of, you know, if the offense can't get all the way to the red zone, at least they can consistently, you know, get put up three on the board um, when they can't completely get there. Um, So that's how I feel about, you know, the kicking specialists and with DJ Taylor, we saw, you know, him have a little bit of, of hubris in his returning and, and wanting to, really hungry to, to take those kicks back and, and rediscover that glory of, of what he, of what he had against Arizona with that electric 108 yard return. I think he just really wanted it a little bit too much last season and put his, you know, desires of wanting that glory ahead of, you know, what might've been better for um, the team's overall field position, not to say like, you know, DJ Taylor, um, he, he doesn't, he, he doesn't have that ability because he, he, his speed is tremendous. And I think he has really good field vision in how to set, you know, players up on, on his returns. Um, I just think his, his hunger for, for wanting to, you know, bring that back and, and really challenge, you know, the all-time college football return goal um, was, was a little bit too much. So I think we're going to see a smarter, more disciplined um, DJ Taylor this season. I think that's going to lead to, you know, more success and, and better field position on kickoffs this year. So, Cole, I don't think it would be really hyperbolic to say it's been a rough, rough offseason for Arizona State. And and I know you can look back to uh, to June of 2021 when the word of the NCAA investigation into the alleged recruiting violations that ASU committed, which did ultimately result in dismissal of, of four, four assistant coaches, uh, three of them, uh, b- before the season even started, and the fourth one, uh, Zach Hill, in, uh, in late January. So, I mean, sure, it was like a, a, a rough off season last year, but it didn't last that long because everything transpired uh, so fast. Uh, and, you know, you, you were starting the season, and it still was, you know, the belief that, that maybe AC with all the talent that they had, uh, could do well. Obviously, an eight-win uh, uh, campaign in 2021 – was really nothing to write uh, to write home about, and then after this, after the season ended, uh, you know the question marks. You know, should Roman Edwards still be the head coach or not? Even though he did get that vote of confidence after the regular season uh, ended and that win in that win over U of A, so that so that was off the table. And then, like I said, you had offensive creator Zach Hill uh, needing to resign because of the findings of that incident investigation, and what really. Uh, damaged ASU, I would say maybe just as much as the NCAA investigation was the NIL, the transfer portal, which in my opinion are really just woven in, in, into each other. Uh, you had a lot of players uh, on the team, key players, I should say, that uh, did leave ASU strictly because of NIL, or NIL was definitely a major component in, in, in the decision to leaving. Um, is, it, is it almost impossible for ASU to kind of dig out of that hole and have a successful season just because you have so much stuff happening 
off the field. I mean, I know the players are are saying that they're more united uh, than ever, that the team chemistry is better than, than it has been in a long time. But uh, if, if ASU ends up having a non-successful season, like a lot of people are, are predicting them to have, are you going to really point first and foremost to all those aspects I just mentioned? Or do you think ultimately you either you have good personnel or you don't have good personnel, and that's what dictates your win and loss record? Yeah, I, I think it'd be – It'd be too brash to blame, you know, NIL as the reason uh, for ASU's shortcomings. Um, and I think in, in some ways um, this this team could be, you know, a little bit better in terms of um, responding to adversity and, uh, you know, team closeness, team bonding than last season's team, mainly, mainly based on the like the players that they brought in and, and the type of character that they brought in. Um, you know, last year they were dealing with a, a lot of high talent, um, young, you know, products at, at the receiver position, um, especially, but might not have had like the right, you know, direction or mindset to, to really, you know, succeed and attain the goals um, that they wanted to. And when those goals weren't met and the allure of NIL um, came into play with the transfer portal. I think it was an easy decision for a lot of those players to be like, okay, our championship window here is over. I might as well go, you know, chase a bag somewhere else and, and try and make the most out of my college experience. And every player situation is different um, obviously, but a lot of the players on ASU last season, um, especially some of the young players felt the need to uh, explore their options in the transfer portal because of that reason. And so while that led to a, you know, a large flux of players um, leaving the program for the transfer portal and, and for greener pastures, it also brought in, um, you know, a, a lot of other players from the transfer portal that aren't chasing those NIL aspirations. And especially since how much NIL has been talked about and how um, slow, you know, the, the collective uh, here in Arizona has been, has been slow to form and just the, you know, the lack of, of NIL opportunities um, upon, you know, the immediate uh, creation of of title nine, then these players that are transferring in the program know what they're getting into and their, their values and their goals are aligned more closely with those on the team that truly just want to win and, and want to, you know, go out on Saturdays and, and wear maroon and gold and, and really represent the program. I think those are the type of players that ASU pursued in the transfer portal and were able to obtain, not on promises of, of NIL, but on promises of these players are going to play and make an impact for a program. And, and the coaching staff told them, like, you're really going to make a difference for our team this year. I think that's why you hear, you know, stories of, of the team bonding really well and, and having a good team dynamic because the, the goals are more closely aligned um, in, in this group than, um, in, than last season where you had a, a lot of conflicting interests. I mean, would it be fair to say that this uh, improved cohesiveness of the team is not a guarantee for success, but maybe a necessary building block to outperform expectations, which are pretty low, let's face it. But do you feel that if that ASU at least has that foundation, that necessary ingredient to perhaps surprise just because they have that intangible 
that may be working in their favor better in 2022 compared to 2021? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think especially that ingredient of the world counting you out and you wanting to defy expectations, um, that wasn't there last season because last season, um, you know, Chase Lucas, Jack Jones, um, the offense thought, you know, they had one of the best units in the Pac-12. And certainly the defense played like it, but the offense didn't reach those standards. And so you had this team thinking um, they were going to contend for, you know, Rose Bowl for, for a championship that set them, that set those goals for themselves um, for that season, uh, just really thought highly of themselves heading into, the, into that season. And then they were met with adversity in BYU. They were met with adversity um, at Utah. They were met with adversity at Washington or facing Washington state at home and you never really saw them dig themselves out of their hole and and really uh, play like the team that they preached that they were going to be um, in in fall camp. And so I think that the ingredient for combating adversity wasn't there on last year's team. And with how this team has rallied against the offseason noise and filtering that out into putting together a productive offseason that they spoke about on Monday um, where they feel good about the people in the program and they feel good about the work that's being put in to make sure they start the season off on the right foot, then I think th- that is the ingredient that you are looking for in the team that uh, it has certainly underachieved in the recruiting aspect, at least for this season. So l- let me put you on the hot seat, call and let's talk about the outside expectations of this program and do they match somebody like yourself as an ASU beat writer obviously knows uh, this program more intimately than 90% of the people making these predictions about Arizona state, uh, the consensus over and under over under, I'm sorry, a number of wins for ASU seems to be five and a half in your opinion, fair number, realistic number, over realistic. Where, where do you stand on that specific uh, betting line? I think it's a I think it's a fair number based on what we know about the program right now, and especially since uh, considering all the factors that have plagued um, the team this off season, right? And we still have like a fall camp to go through. We still have you know the the preseason slate to go through in terms of Northern Arizona, Oklahoma State, and Eastern Michigan before you hit the the Pac-12 slate. But yeah, I think that is pretty fair. I mean, that basically assumes. ASU is going to be a pretty heavy underdog in all of the pivotal conference play matchups that, that they're, that they're going to face off against and that they're going to lose those matchups. But I think like they, they face Utah fourth game of the season. I think that matchup is going to be a very different story from the last time we saw those teams play because one ASU is going to have played a lot of 12 personnel um, because they'll have a, an entire fall camp to go at, go against Glenn Thomas's two tight end setup, and they'll be a, a lot more prepared for that tight end duo of Brent Keithy and Dalton Kincaid that really vanquished ASU in the second half to the point where it kind of seemed like ASU, um, you know, couldn't find the tight ends, and they, they were they were letting free plays go um, and and letting Brent Keithy motion out to the flat and and stuff like that. All those tricks that Utah played in in that second half. ASU is going to be a lot better prepared for it because they, they'll have seen it for the three previous games and an entire um, preseason practice slate. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example of a, of a, of a pivotal matchup that um, so far 
the media has predicted them to lose. But, um, you know, games this season against Washington State, um, Washington and and uh, and Oregon State, um, who ASU lost against last season, are going to be a different story, too, because of the players that all those programs have to replace, right, with Washington State losing Jaden Delora to the in-conference rival down south. And then Oregon State losing um, a bunch of their a bunch of their offense. That was the main reason, you know, why uh, the the Sun Devils fell short in Corvallis. So uh, basically, it's just it's how this team is going to respond to adversity. It's how this team is going to rally, and it it's how this team is going to defy those expectations against the matchups that seem to be swung, you know, heavily in their opponents' favor. So I guess you're not surprised that uh, the uh, Pac-12 uh, media preseason poll that actually actually just came out uh, a couple hours before you and I uh, jumped on this podcast uh, picked ASU 10th. I picked I picked ASU eighth, uh, and I summed it up that I I just think that the two bottom feeders of what used to be the North Division, Stanford and Cal, are uh, still worse than the uh, bottom feeders of what used to be the South Division in in U of A in Colorado. So that's the reason for the quote unquote discrepancy of my vote. But um, it sounds to me that you're not surprised that ASU got picked 10th by the media collectively, but you also feel it's realistic maybe for ASU to end up somewhere in the number eight range as I predicted. And I'm not saying it just because I predicted it, but it sounds like based on what you just said a minute ago, that you feel that this team is much closer to being ranked at the end of November, number eight versus number 10 in the Pac-12 standings. Oh yeah, one one hundred percent, and especially um, since I mean we'll we'll be out there at fall camp seeing, you know, the the practice proceedings and how um, each uh, you know each each quarterback is integrating into the offense and how the defense defensive front is coming along. There's just a whole lot of factors and areas of improvement that um, will make us feel a, a bit better about you know our project our projection compared to the general Pac-12 media projection. But I think the eight, you know, seven to eight ranges is a good place, um, you know, for, for us to predict them to finish yet, knowing what you and I know about this team. Yeah. So if you had to set to put your finger on one element, and it could be off the field, it could be on the field, that could cause ASU to, defy those expectations and again the, the the bar is really low we, we all know that so maybe clearing that bar isn't you know too too difficult of a task but is there anything called in your mind that it has to happen more than anything else and again it could be on the field it could be off the field uh for the for this asu team not to be a huge surprise but at least maybe to be a mild surprise when we look at what uh, this team has achieved when the regular season ends yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've always held like three elements of the team that, you know, need need to ascend or, or need to happen in order for ASU this season to exceed expectations. And that's for Emory Jones to come in and, you know, take the next step as as the quarterback um, for this offense that where the offense fell short in the last two years. Right. Um, they need a, a confident signal caller um, who toes the line between, um, you know, extending plays and and doing what's best for the offense and, and really just 
you know, being a, a, a positive influence on, on the passing game as, as well as the running game. Um, they, they need like a, a confident signal caller. And I think Emory Jones, you know, stepping in um, from his, from his time at Florida and having, you know, spent time under all the pressures that comes with playing for an SEC school can, you know, be that, be that positive influence for ASU. Um, the second is the development of the receiving game. And I think that starts with Elijah Badger, um, who everyone has talked about his potential and I'm sure he's gotten sick of it too, of, of hearing what he can do, but he seems really motivated to prove that he is an all talk and that he can, um, you know, really showcase his talents and, and what he brings to the table for this offense, um, for, for this, uh, for this fall campaign. And then the third element I think is the pass rush um, because you and I, we were very intimate um, with Rodriguez's section of practice um, pretty much every day. And you can hear his voice um, through all corners of the practice field of him instructing his unit. And the defensive line is, is, is a wolf pack and they, and they stick together and they trust coach Rod and they believe in coach Rod. And I think, uh, it's about time we, we finally see the full force of what this pass rush can do. Um, and I think especially with Donnie Henderson with taking over the reins as defensive coordinator, he's going to allow coach Rodriguez to be a, a little bit more experimental with his approach up front. And I think we're going to see, you know, more stunts, more blitzes, um, more ways to uh, overwhelm the offensive line in order to put some pressure on the quarterback. And I think for, for as much as, um, Coach Rodriguez um, preaches about uh, and and how he how he believes that he is preaching the gospel of defensive line play. There needs to be um, a, a standard of of pressure where the defensive line is that the defensive line is creating um, uh, up front for the Sun Devils to be, um, you know, for the for the Sun Devils to continue their success on defense last year which I would say is mostly due to um, the, the amount of senior starters there were, and as well as a secondary that had played with each other for the last two to three seasons. Well, Cole, I, I appreciate the breakdown. I appreciate the discussion. I promise you, you're not going to have to wait that long until your next appearance on, on, on the Devil's Junkies podcast. Obviously, Anybody listening, uh, you can catch uh, all of Cole's work on our website at devilsitis.com. Does a great job with uh, the, the, the film breakdowns uh, throughout the season, part of, part of our preview uh, pieces uh, all, all throughout the year. Uh, you, can, you can have to look forward to that. And Cole, I know that you also do a lot of work on the NFL side. So we have some listeners uh, that also would like maybe to uh, dip their toe in the water and look at your NFL analysis. Uh, why don't you tell them where they can find you on social media? Yeah, I covered the the Chargers and do draft work for them over uh, at USA Today, their flagship site, the Chargers Wire. Um, so you can expect my you know weekly content on that on that side, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Ham Analysis. I you know I'm basically just a nut for all things football and football evaluation. So even if it doesn't have to do with ASU, if you want to learn more about Pac-12 or or scheme or, you know, just want to see some, some cool plays and how they develop. I love breaking those down in 240 characters or less. And so you can, you can follow, just follow the Twitter at ham analysis. I'm, I'm sure you you'll be, you'll be surprised and find something that you like. Okay, Cole. Well, I thought, thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you uh, early next week uh, for the remainder of ASU's uh, media days. And obviously uh, 
full camp begins on uh, Wednesday, August 3rd. Take care, man. Yeah, I can't wait. Joining us now on the Devil's Junkies podcast, I am uh, doing uh, some turning of the tables, uh, if you will, and just like my staff member Cole Topham finally made his debut on the Devil's Junkies podcast, uh, here's another person who uh, I've been honored and humbled uh, to be on his podcast for, I don't know, uh, 70 some appearances. I've, I, I lost track. I know Brad is going to tell us in a second how many, but uh, finally I'm getting Speak of the Devil's podcast. Brad Denny on my podcast. Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Ho. Thanks for having me on. And I, I think the number's like, you know, we're, we're, we're pushing like mid-80s at this point. Oh, wow. Okay. I, 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 I guess I was <laughs> way off in a good way with that figure. And, um, uh, Brad, obviously I want to have you on uh, fresh from the uh, just-ended Pac-12 Media Day there in Los Angeles. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking a time uh, on your way back home to the Valley to uh, just provide uh, your insight uh, about this event today. And look, let's just start with the elephant uh, in the room, and I'm sure it's something that occupied much of the narrative. Uh, the departure of the two LA schools in 2024 to the Big Ten. How, how do you think that narrative kind of shaped uh, t- today's event? I mean, did it seem even overkill, you know, in the early hours uh, of the morning, uh, just to hear uh, one coach after another, one player after another, uh, basically having copy and paste statements? Or do you feel maybe there was some kind of meaningful discussion around this topic? I think it really kind of got off to a bang with uh, George Klyavkov and his opening remarks. I mean, obviously the narrative was the, the common thread throughout the entire day, and, and really just every coach that came to the to the main stage was asked about it in terms of just how it is going to impact their program going forward. And then near the end of the day with um, Chip Kelly and Lincoln Riley kind of going a little bit more in detail on kind of their respective situations. But really I think the kind of the fireworks got started off pretty early when, when Klyavkov was – was discussing it and kind of, you know, during the recent comments from the Big 12 commissioner talking about, you know, the, the co- their conference being open for business, uh, Klyavkov kind of, you know, turned that around as like, you know, well, you know, it's good to know they're open for business. We, you know, we're not sure, uh, you know, if we'll go shopping over there yet. So kind of, you know, putting them on notice, perhaps, you know, uh, the way that uh, the Big 12 is trying to put the Pac-12 on notice. Uh, he also made reference to the fact that, you know, after the last couple of weeks, he feels like he's been feeling like, you know, there's been lobbing grenades. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, be, uh, potential being uh, poached again uh, from more schools. Uh, but, yeah, just kind of the, the departure of, of the L.A. schools, the, dom- the that major domino that is now, you know, going to fall and which way it's going to fall is still kind of TBD. Um, really kind of dominated dominated the day. But uh, Klyavkov seemed a little, uh, in his comments, I, I felt there was kind of an undercurrent uh, of maybe I don't know maybe anger might be too hard of a, uh, harsh of a word, but there was definitely uh, some edge to Klyavkov that we haven't seen before. At least I haven't seen before in, in terms of his comments. Uh, he did mention that, you know and that uh, specifically that if UCLA wanted to come back and you know there's a lot of he mentioned that there's a lot of people in Pasadena and Westwood that uh, you know would are not happy with the move that they would be welcomed back with open arms and notable by omission he did not mention anything about USC. <laughs> so seems like that that bridge is fully burned there, but. Uh, 
Yeah, it's definitely, you know, uh, for the, almost the uh, one year to the day that he took over, it's like, he obviously, he's now dealing with this massive, you know, foundation-shaking move, and now it's just kind of, you know, what's the next domino going to fall, whether it's, you know, initiated by the Pac-12 or the Big 12 or perhaps elsewhere. And I'm just curious, uh, when uh, both uh, head coaches of the L.A. schools, Chip Kelly for UCLA, Lincoln Raleigh for USC, came to the podium, when they were asked about that, were there uh, really maybe like encircling the wagons mode, or were there maybe more apologetic in their comments about the move to the Big Ten? What, what was your uh, take from their narrative? Uh, yeah, starting with, with Chip Kelly, just he kind of made it seem as it's going to be more kind of business as usual. That he wasn't really paying too much attention. Uh, and then he kind of had probably the, the funniest moment of the day um, when, he, when he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's something that's really not got it in the radar. We're just, you know, it's a couple years away. We're focusing on uh, on the here and now and how to be good." Uh, but then he went on to immediately say that uh, you know he rattled off the exact mileage that you know that Seattle's further away than Lincoln, Nebraska. Then the next question was just from a writer was a sarcastic, well, how far is Piscataway? And he came back with immediate 2,765 miles. And then he went into a, Chip, a very Chip Kelly thing of just talking about why the air travel one way across the country is different because of the air currents and all that stuff. Um, but, um, so he just kind of was like kind of more business than usual. Uh, he was asked about whether the uh, moving the conference is going to shape any kind of, you know, roster construction and, you know, going to a different style of play in the Big Ten, perhaps, you know, uh, you know, more, more, more stereotypically kind of that, that big uh, ground-and-pound type stuff, and he said that you know, just kind of be business as usual, just trying to get good players. Uh, Lincoln Riley, was, uh, I think, was just kind of uh, a little bit more um, uh, diplomatic in, in his approach. Uh, he didn't get too far into it. Um, a lot of the, the, uh, the questioning that he faced was kind of more towards uh, specifically kind of like the transfer portal uh, and stuff in that regard. Um but yeah, it just seemed like you know they weren't trying. They were definitely kind of you know not trying to make too many too many waves. That obviously that's something that's been on their radar. That they've been dealing with for the last you know month or so, however long that's been going. But uh, nothing nothing I would say that rose that rose to the level of kind of the, of uh, George Klyavkov's comments to open things up. So let's um, move on to Arizona State. Uh, Herm Edwards uh, was there with uh, linebacker Kyle Soley, offensive lineman Ladarius Henderson, addressing the media. And seeing and reading the comments uh, by Edwards, uh, he seems to be uh, really kind of going with the flow when it comes to the transfer portal of the NIL and the adverse impact, obviously, that it did have on Arizona State. And, you know, did admit that uh, when you add 43 uh, players, obviously not all of them are going to be in the two deep. Not all of them are going to be deemed impact players. But it's, it's going to be a process. And maybe not until the end of uh, non-conference slate or maybe the even dipping into the first couple games of Pac-12 play, we will know if this team actually has been able to gel together, has been able to incorporate all these newcomers in an effective way and have this team uh, playing at a higher level than many expected. And obviously the bar is uh, pretty low when you look at the uh, preseason media poll that ranked uh, the Sun Devils 10th. Um, what was uh, your opinion of uh, about what, what Herm Edwards said? I don't, I don't know if he said really anything shocking, although I'm sure uh, you know some people might uh, still be very, very critical about what he said. But I'm just curious uh, to get uh, your take on uh, Arizona State head coach and uh, what he um, had to offer during this event. Yeah, I think if for anybody who's been following um, this program for any kind of length of time, especially during the, the last year plus, and any, you know, any listeners of your podcast, Speak of the Devils, it, it was really kind of the same Herm and the tone that 
um, we've heard, you know, these last, uh, this last stretch, I mean, when asked about the investigation, he mentioned that he can't comment, the focus is where it needs to be. Um, you know, the, the, I think perhaps the most notable thing that kind of jumped out to me was just kind of uh, regards to NIL, which is another kind of common through line that every coach faced, uh, just, you know, how the transfer portal and, and NIL specifically have really kind of impacted and upended uh, the sport. And uh, her made another train analogy, which is something in his wheelhouse about just how it's something that we saw all saw coming down the tracks. Um, but, of course, anybody who follows this program knows that, NA, that ASU has been very reactive rather than proactive when it comes to NIL and just kind of, you know, putting um, themselves in a place where they get a hole that they've got to kind of dig out from. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, there's a few players that, uh, you know, the, the NIL was a factor in, in their decision and that they, you know, they've been bringing some folks in. As you alluded to, you know, in terms of the uh, kind of this, looking at this season specifically, you mentioned, of course, that, that he thinks about week three or so is about the earliest that he can possibly get a read on what kind of team uh, this he, he will have in, in uh, 2022, what kind of characteristics. Uh, he does say that he, uh, he pride that, that throughout his tenure here that he always try to have a team of toughness. He feels that that's uh, been something that's been on display that with this year's group, and especially you now, and also kind of a refrain we've heard from talking to players is perhaps the mental toughness might be one of the bigger and more important factors for ASU this season, just in terms of all the distractions that have been going on, all the external doubt. Uh, and it could be a situation where we have that circle the wagons effect where ultimately perhaps this, uh, you know, with some key addition by subtractions in terms of maybe those locker room presences um, and some of that external doubt might fuel the fire. And I know it's, you know, one of the, the things that, uh, you know, covering the program as long as you have, Hode, I mean, you know that, you know, ASU fans seem to love it when uh, <laughs> the, the, the expectations are low because, uh, you know, that's when they typically do the best. So in that case, you know, ASU is in a prime position to overachieve this year. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get back to that low bar of expectations uh, in a minute, but I think uh, one statement that Herm Edwards made, which really haven't, hasn't really been talked a lot, as far as I can tell, uh, during uh, Pac-12 Media Day, and something that I, I, I feel that I've, I've been saying, may, maybe at nauseam, that the NCAA really invited NIL upon themselves. I mean, and I know Supreme Court decision, enough said, uh, that... Uh, if they that the NCAA really made their own bed because they absolutely refused, in my opinion, to uh, really recognize the revenue student athletes for for what they are. And if all they had to do is maybe increase the monthly stipend that uh, Power Five uh, um, football players all over the country receive, you know, by a thousand dollars or maybe an amount that close to that. I think that would really uh, kill uh, any NIL talk, any NIL movement. And, you know, that along with uh, football coaches switching programs on the regular year after year, I think that's what really bred, in my opinion, the NIL. That's what really bred uh, the transfer portal. And Herm Edwards said the student athlete now has a louder voice more than they ever had. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. I'm just curious, uh, you know, as to your take on that statement in a vacuum, because I feel that statement is truly on point. And 
a lot of folks just really view the student athlete as, you know, shut up and play uh, type of situation. And now the pendulum has uh, really shifted in such a dramatic way the other way. But I just feel that the powers to be really brought NIL upon themselves, really brought the transfer portal on themselves. I'm just curious uh, what you thought about Herm Edwards' statement in that regard. And uh, do you really think that it really does deserve maybe more merit than a lot of people may be giving it? Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of goes back to the old thing of just how everybody, you know, loves a free market until the workers all of a sudden get get some power. And you know, everybody knew that you know that and I, that you know player compensation in some form or fashion and was coming. And you know, I think her made the kind of the, the uh, mentioned the kind of the, the train analogy. Just you know, you saw it coming down the tracks, but and just and the and I think we've talked about it on Speak of the Devil, just how the NCAA just knew that this was coming, knew this was coming, and did literally nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're in the, in the absolute kind of chaos uh, situation that we are, kind of Wild West, um, with different states even having different measures of legislation. One of the coaches today, uh, I forget who off of hand, made mention that, you know, that there needs, that the solution is going to have to come at a government level. Um, so, I mean, it's still a, a very chaotic situation. And you know, whether it's in terms of just enforcing the rules or the few rules that are in place that are really not being enforced or just, you know, coming up with a new set of rules, something needs to happen. But yeah, the comment that you're referencing of Herm saying that, you know, the, you know, players are, are you know, starting to get some power and not everybody's like that. It just that does kind of go back to, you know, it's kind of a situation, a thing that the situation within college football and i think uh, you in a broader sense you even expanded a little bit in recent years to just football or to uh, sports in general of just you know when athletes start you know looking out for their own interests and being more vocal and being empowered to do so that might shake up the old guard that just you know kind of goes back to the shut up and dribble type things of just they just want to have their sports they don't really want to know how the sausage is made or, or necessarily want to see that you know some more fair equal distribution of the, the workforce and the, the players that are out there risking their bodies getting getting a, a greater cut but yeah going back you know to the ncaa's inaction for something that they knew for years and years and years was coming has created this mess and uh, then you go back to how asu has kind of also known that this was coming and then has been kind of more reactive than proactive uh as opposed to say a, a usc who's been more on the forefront of things lincoln rally uh, was up there today talking about how he feels that no no school in the country is better positioned in terms in being more proactive in terms of NIL than the Trojans are, and you're seeing some of the successes that they've been able to have, some of the struggles ASU has in turn had on their situation, so it's not hard to draw kind of the, the common through line there. Yeah, yeah and, and just, and just to wrap up the discussion on, on NIL, and I did uh, tweet this out uh, last week, I believe, that uh, the ASU NL Collective uh, is uh, going to launch sometime in mid-August. So that's why we probably haven't heard a whole lot about it, but uh, they are definitely planning a, a big press release, a, a big event uh, to announce that. Uh, you know, we'll see what that ultimately entails, how much it does uh, benefit not only the ASU football team, but just the ASU athletic department, or I should say the student-athletes in general. But uh, th- that is something forthcoming just for Anybody listening to the podcast right now and wondering what is going on with the a- with the ASU uh, NIL collective? So, Brad, I mean, you talked about low expectations and how some ASU fans absolutely relish uh, um, with with low expectations because that that's that is when ASU does uh, n- 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 normally succeed. Normally, uh, I'm not going to say shock the world, but just maybe performs above expectations. Uh, so. 
do you, in that vein, um, agree with the preseason poll placing ASU 10 with the uh, seems to be consensus over under win total for the Sun Devils being set at, at 5.5? Uh, do, do you agree with those figures uh, in, in itself? Or do, you, or do you feel that uh, maybe the, the folks that are setting uh, that bar as low as they are might be just a little too harsh on the team, which, true, they got a lot of new faces, but I still think uh, may have some uh, more talent at specific positions that people may give them credit. Yeah, I think that the, that ranking is more narrative-driven than, than actual football-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a lot of challenges that ASU's gonna, uh, questions they need to answer. Um, you know, in terms of just finding the quarterback, is it in fact Emory Jones placing those three starters on the on the O line and finding some some receivers who can be reliable? But I do think that there's you know still a lot of talent on this team, and while there is uh, um, of course a lot of uh, attention and rightfully so paid on the number of departures ASU suffered from last year, they're all they also brought in as you know a lot of pretty good good football players as well that that figure to play some pretty key snaps for them this year. I really like what they have up in the front seven. I mean, a couple of names they got to replace, but still a lot of good returning talents and a good uh, infusion of, of good players there. Um, obviously, there's some the new starters in the secondary, but I think with the returning talent they got there, some of the experience they brought in, that should go pretty well. Um, tenth was a little shocking to me. I do. I, I think that you know, if there was no investigation stuff, um, that narrative black cloud. Uh, I think you probably see ASU kind of where they typically kind of are, maybe in, the, in that five to seven range or whatever i you know i think asu is going to be a team and and maybe a little uh, teaser ahead to our uh, season preview roundtable but I, I think asu is going to be right in the mix uh, for bowl contention again i don't see that them kind of bottoming to one of the one of the, the worst you know a handful of teams in this conference i think you know that there's a lot of teams that asu i think just is flat out better for even just with some of the unknown questions that uh, that ultimately the media right now is picking ahead uh, that's not to say that you know that there's not a potential for ASU to, you know, if some of the the, the external noise gets to them as it did, as they are starting to admit that got to them a little bit a year ago, if some of the, the quarterback play or the passing game is not able to to rebound rebound from a, a rough 2021 season, I could see that you know the path to a 10th place finish. But I think objectively at this point, I think a lot of that that uh, that negativity, at least from a national or regional perspective, is narrative driven. Well, Brad, I really enjoyed this turning of the tables. Finally, finally, I got, 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 got you on my podcast. I really do appreciate your insight uh, being there at the Pac-12's uh, Media Day. And uh, before we, uh, you know, send you on your way to uh, a climate that is about 40 degrees warmer, uh, why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find uh, your fine work on uh, social media? Yeah, you can give me a follow on Twitter at bdenny29. Also, it's my Instagram handle, but even my Instagram bio says follow me on Twitter instead. I never really <laughs> use the IG. Uh, and also, of course, um, uh, tune in to Speak of the Devils uh, podcast. You can find it pretty much anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, if you listen to the show, you know, Hodes a frequent guest, by far and away, number one on the all-time appearance leaderboard. So uh, we've got you, of course, booked for the uh, upcoming season preview roundtable. That's almost uh, annually our, one of the most listened to shows. So mm-hmm. I encourage folks to uh, get on board there as well. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Not a problem, Brad. Uh, safe travels on the I-10 uh, back east. And uh, we will uh, talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks. And that will do it for this episode of the Devil Junkies podcast. Thank you for my esteemed guests who joined me today, devilsdigest.com staff writer, Cole Topham and Speak of the Devils co-host Brad Denny. 
the first week of August is going to be very busy in terms of our coverage since we have media days with both the entire ASU coaching staff as well as some of the team's notable newcomers coming up on Monday and Tuesday. And on Wednesday, August 3rd, the Sun Devils do kick off their preseason camp. And if you want to make sure that you're not missing any of our daily practice reports and several other features coming up this week and really for the rest of the 2022 season, make sure you become a premium subscriber on devilsitis.com. And if you need any incentives, starting Sunday, July 31st, we're going to run a new subscriber promotion, which you can find on the front page of our website, as well as our Twitter page, at Devil's Digest. If you're not already a member of the Huddle Premium community, we would love to have you join us. My staff, uh, Cole Topham, who was on the podcast today, does an excellent job with his team analysis all season long. And the only way not to miss any of his content, as well as our entire staff's content is to become a premium subscriber. So thank you again for tuning in and have a great week. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.